Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Log, where a member-supported blog, podcast, and weekly email come what's fresh and what's new and open source. Check out the blog at thechangelog.com or our past shows at 5x5.tv slash changelog. And you're listening to episode 124. Jared and I talked to Tim Caswell about getting started in open source, exploring new frontiers, and his project, T-Edit, a Git-based development environment. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean, TopTile, and SnapCI. We'll talk to you a bit more about TopTile and SnapCI later in the show, but our friends at DigitalOcean are a simple cloud hosting provider built for developers. In just 55 seconds, you can join over 150,000 developers who deploy to DigitalOcean's SSD cloud. DigitalOcean offers a fantastic user experience handcrafted by developers. Enjoy the ease of use and speed of an SSD-only cloud. Create droplets, manage DNS, build a new server from a snapshot, save a ton of time installing Rails, Docker, GitLab, and more with one-click installs. You can even scale your infrastructure with the intuitive API. Sign up today and use the code CHANGELOGJULY to get a $10 credit when you sign up. Head to DigitalOcean.com to get started. And now, on to the show. We're joined today with uh, with Tim Caswell. I also have the managing editor, my sidekick in crime, Jared Santo, on the call too. So, Tim and Jared, say hello. Hey, hello. So, Tim, you are uh, you're no stranger to the changelog. You used to be uh, a contributor to the changelog back in the day when we were still on Tumblr, and uh, it's a different changelog probably, but still the same mission. But uh, you've been on the show before. Uh, you started uh, How to Node and several other things. You're prolific in open source. You speak at many conferences. So you're not a stranger to the world. But for those who may be coming to this podcast brand new that don't know who you are, can you kind of tee up whom Tim Caswell is? Okay. So I, I guess the best way to describe me is I like to invent things. I love open source and I love enabling other programmers. The A quick background is I programmed in Commodores and QBasic for a long time without internet, without help, and I was blocked by limitations of the platform. Nowadays, we have incredible amounts of technology and ability, and the main thing blocking people is just they think things aren't possible. So I basically spend every free moment I have finding something that is impossible and making it possible. So I I author a lot of libraries, a lot of infrastructure code, and a lot of educational content. So pretty much anything related to that, I've I've worked a ton with the Node.js project since the very beginning in 2009. Um, I've worked on WebOS. I worked at Cloud9 IDE. Of course, we're going to talk about my recent work on the show. I've, I mean, basically, I've done web development since the, there was a web, and I like enabling people. What do you, just I guess pausing on that for a second, considering that you've been developing for the web since there has been a web, what do you think... Um, what kind of, I guess, quick advice would you give about open source to some of the newer people that are coming to open source, let's say, in the last five to six years? That's that's still kind of older but new in comparison to your time frame. What, what do you think has changed, I guess, to the degree of access to information? So, yeah, I mean, first of all, there was the Internet, which made a world of difference. And then for a long time, it was central systems like W3 schools was actually where I learned a lot of web tech. And... As much as we make fun of them, it was the content I had. And so it worked. But nowadays we have all sorts of blogs and podcasts and videos, and we have better documentation sites. 
Microsoft has a good one. Mozilla has a good one. There's lots of stuff out there. I mean, you can learn from anywhere from individuals to large companies, and there's just a ton of stuff as far as learning goes. Yeah. Now, as far as the community involvement, that's where it really gets interesting. What I, what I tell people is I'm just a guy from a small town in Texas. I was nobody until I started writing a blog. And once I started writing a blog and people found out what I write, was writing was interesting, suddenly I started getting these job offers. I ended up in California working for HP and, and all sorts of things happened. Anybody can be successful in web development if they have passion and if they're willing to volunteer a lot of free time and to help in open source. It, yeah. pays, it pays back hugely. I like to is and help us navigate that conversation because the you know I, I guess the word free can scare some people, but open source is maybe an easy way to say free um, and make it cool. I guess at least today, like open source is becoming more and more cool uh, to be a part of, and obviously it has its own gains and benefits, which you can definitely allude to. But um, you know, it can be a scary word to say free. So open source time, definitely giving back to the community. Plus a, a lot of what people are jumping into these days are frameworks or platforms that have been, you know, getting the tires kicked for years by the community and, and it's freely accessible to them. So why not give back? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people like to work on frameworks. Some people are more like me and just want to make things from scratch. I mean, there, there's place for all types of people in open source communities. At which point did you feel like you had like quality content to give back? Because I think a lot of the the lack of confidence for people just getting started is I have a lot to learn. Maybe it's a little bit of the imposter syndrome. Like, what could my blog possibly provide um, to the community that's of value? Did you have a certain point where you're like, you just hit a confidence bump and you're like, all right, I'm just going to start writing online. I'm willing to put yourself out there or... You know, did you do it too late, too early? What's what's advice for people getting getting to that point? Um, I think I'm I'm not normal in that regard. I I mean, I started out programming when I was I don't know seven, and so by the time I graduated high school, I'd already tried and failed at a web startup, and I I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty confident in my abilities, wow. probably too confident. Mm-hmm. I look back at that code and I'm like, oh my gosh. Did I actually think that was good code? Right. <laughs> so I didn't have that problem. I thought I was okay. really good. Okay. And now so as far as the, yeah. the, the social aspect, I, I mean, I have mild Asperger's and when I was in high school, like I would literally be the kid who runs to the front of the school line with my long sleeve winter coat and shorts, eat my lunch and then run to the library and read books about building catapults. Mm. Like that was me. <laughs> And then somewhere in there, I, I changed from that to I joined a sports team, got good at swim. And then what really helped is I went on a mission for my church where you spend all day going door to door, asking people questions about their life and religion. Now, if mm-hmm. that won't break you out of your bubble, I don't know what will. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. So at that point, right, and your thoughts online was nothing. <laughs> in, in, yeah. Uh, yeah, in context. I mean, I, I still get a little stage fright. My my first conference talk was in this movie theater in Stockholm, Sweden. And I just remember being on stage with spotlights in this room of hundreds of people, and I can't see them. And it was a little nerve-wracking. Mm. Wow. But what, what helped me a lot, actually, was meeting with the Dallas RB user group and doing lightning talks and just starting there. Like, that, that did wonders. I've been to that uh, that group once or twice. We uh, I work at a nonprofit called Pure Charity. is my very passionate day job, and 
every once in a while we'd be in Dallas hanging out and we'd be there with Karthik and Wynn and Jesse, uh, whom are probably names you know that go to Dallas RB. So that's a good meetup too. It is. They they do really well. And yeah, I mean, that helped me. That helped yeah. ease me in because there's a big step between I'm giving a lightning talk to 10 guys I know and I'm on a stage with hundreds of people in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't imagine that uh, stage when I, I... So, you know, a little confession on my side, I I would probably not be very happy at all being in front of that many people with stage lights on me. I would probably just rather be in the crowd. Uh, as odd as it might seem running a podcast. That's, behind the uh, mic. Yeah, it's it's easier to be behind the mic in the seclusion of my comfortable office than in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. It's just not my place. You can, you can always edit it too. So <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's, to some degree, we try to, as best we can, we try to put this one down from uh, live to tape, as, as they say in recording. But Nice. So, so I was going to say, Go you're ahead, obviously Jared. doing a lot, a lot of JavaScript nowadays. Could you take us through your language progression through the years? Just an um, overview? Sure. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but basically, sure. I did basic for a long time. A long, long time. I did, like I said, I started on Commodore 64 basic, which is awesome, because mm-hmm. that thing had no memory management at all. You could just poke random spots in memory and things would happen. <laughs> And then, and then I got a DOS computer. I had this this lovely little 386 with 16 megahertz and 16 megs of RAM, and I programmed on that thing for about 10 years. Just that, and the QBasic wow. readme was my entire world. So and, that like age seven to 17, ish. Yeah, and then the internet <laughs> came out. Yeah, exactly. And that changed everything. I think it's important to mention too, just um, just from a a passionate standpoint, I guess, maybe some inspiration or some encouragement is that you uh, attacked this passion for programming when there was no information. So you had no choice but to hit the brick walls and hit the hurdles and find ways yourself to get over them. We live in a world now where if you hit a hurdle, you Google it, you likely land on Stack Overflow um, to some degree, maybe somebody's blog or a doc somewhere, maybe. There's a lot of information accessible to people to get over those hurdles. So it's building that confidence, I think, uh, is a lot harder today because you're always second guessing yourself. And maybe to some degree, could you quickly touch on maybe that for you, like gaining confidence on your own? Okay, um, I think. So there are always unsolved problems. I, I tend to do things that haven't been done before because that's what interests me. And I hit a lot of roadblocks, even in today's world. I will be, for example, today, I was trying to figure out how to store binary data in Safari. And a few people have tried this. The The lawn chair and PouchDB people have worked on this. They're like, yeah, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You got to base64 encode it and use WebSQL and crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, But sometimes I'm, on, I'm doing things like a Chrome package app, and I'm testing these APIs that no one has really used before or the has used much or the GitHub REST API because I can't do real Git protocol to GitHub. And I find bugs everywhere. I find bugs in Chrome. I find bugs in GitHub. And there's nothing on Stack Overflow about it because no one's really tried this yet. So there's still plenty of frontier out there. You just have to do things that haven't been done before. So I would imagine you're probably on the the happy but yet sad list. Oh, another support request from Tim. Oh, he found he found another bug. Gosh, you know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so, since you're an inventor and you like to hit the unknown, it probably tees up the what I think is the meat of the conversation. So, 
Um, just to quickly touch on JS Git, Git Browser, T-Edit, or some might call it Tedit, which was me prior to listening to your super awesome YouTube demo of that, which blew my mind. So, I mean, how, how, what's the best way to tee up what you've what you're doing now with T-Edit and the Kickstarter you did for JS Git and the like you said the infrastructure tools you need to actually pull this project off? Right. I'd like to start with the goal. And the goal is a very ambitious but but simple goal. I want to make programming accessible. And what I mean by that is we have all these devices in the world that that kids and teenagers have access to that are consumption devices. We have iPads and Android tablets and Chromebooks and who knows what else. Maybe you're on a school computer or a library computer or something and it's a lockdown environment. But they all have JavaScript. They all have a web platform, all of them. And so my goal is to build a full professional developer environment with everything, with dependency management, with build systems, with Git check-in, check-out, clone, merge, all of that to work in this restricted environment. And I want to do that so that more people can get into programming without having to go out and buy a MacBook Pro or a Windows PC or something. So that's the goal. Now, with that goal, there's a whole lot of subparts. I am inventing a new language. I'm implementing Git and JavaScript. I'm making a prototype of this developer environment. And so that's what all these projects are. The One of the biggest technical ones was some sort of version control and interacting with the outside world. And nowadays, by far, the most popular version control system for open source is Git. And so I've been working on implementing Git in JavaScript because then I can use it anywhere. And so, yeah. Well, that brings us to the, I guess, the first hurdle you hit was you couldn't do T-Edit unless you had JS Git. Can you talk about, I guess, the exploration, the inventor side of you? To, to know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of wisdom and discernment in your choices, too. I mean, you can see that given your path. Uh, you crowdfunded JS Git twice. Um, so maybe take us back to, you know, you said you have a goal. How did you begin to think about that goal and, and figure out what you needed to get in place to actually meet it? Well, the way you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And... It's very easy to get overwhelmed when you have large goals like this. And so I figured, what is a large, substantial thing that I need for this that just needs to get done? And and I decided over a year, about a little over a year ago, that I needed Git. And if I had Git, that would enable so many things. And so I tried working on my free time and didn't make any progress. I looked for existing code, and there was nothing that had what I needed. I mean, there there were several attempts. I'm not the first person to try Git in JavaScript. There were many, many attempts. But nothing nothing had what I wanted. And so one day I just came to the conclusion that I have to do this full time and I have to find a way to fund that. And Kickstarter was very was a little new and still pretty exciting back then, so I thought I'd give it a try. And that's that's where that started. So there were two Kickstarters for JS Git? There was a Kickstarter. So there was a Kickstarter, and I didn't ask for near enough money because mm. I mis- I misunderstood how it works. <laughs> I want to ask you about that goal because I've heard some kind of behind-the-scene horror stories from some people like, I didn't ask for enough or, yeah. So, so I mean, obviously, implementing Git in JavaScript is, with my skill set, roughly a year full-time work. Hmm. I mean, it's not easy at all. And I asked for, what did I ask for? 12000 that's not a year of salary. I have three kids in a house. I mean, that's not going to work. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So what, what I did was I calculated, okay, I have these consulting projects and if I cancel them, then it'll take me a month or two to get new consulting things if the Kickstarter doesn't work out or whatever. And so in Kickstarter, they say, what's your minimum? What's the least you're willing to accept to make it worth your time? And I said, well, I'll do 12,000. That'll give me enough that I can live on a reduced budget for a few months. And that makes it worth it to fire my clients. And so I put that as my minimum. Now here's the problem. Everyone who was funding it thought that was all I needed. And so it hit the minimum overnight. Like overnight it hit. It was because it was very exciting. People loved the idea. But as soon as I hit that, it just crawled to a halt. And I set stretch goals. I explained to people, no, that's the minimum. If you want all these things implemented, I need a lot more. And it, it didn't work. Huh. So I worked on that. I stretched it for as many months as I could until it was endangering my family. And then Bounty Source came to me and says, hey, we're like Kickstarter, but specifically for open source projects, we will help you. And they did. They they went out and helped find funding from corporations. They handled all the stickers and T-shirts and everything. Wow. They just charge a fee for the service, which I thought was well worth my time. Because when I was doing the Kickstarter, I spent an entire month and a half full-time fundraising. And that right. was half the money because I barely hit, I barely got enough. So that was almost a waste of time. So the JS Get One in, in Bounty Source raised 34000 just a little over $34,000 of your $30,000 goal. That's, that's neat. I, I've, I knew about Bounty Source, obviously. We've, we've, um, I think we've had uh, Michael Peace on the show before. He had an RVM fundraiser there. I, I'm not really sure how you term it. Uh, Bounty Source there, I guess. Because you would use the brand name of the platform, like a Kickstarter. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> um, and then you got your twelve thousand dollar goal that you that you even over exceeded to. You had four or five backers on on Kickstarter, which uh, looking at the time frames, trying to figure out what the time frames were between the two. Was it about five months between or a few months between Kickstarter and Bounty Source? S- something like that. That sounds right. So I mean, you got twenty thousand dollars. So what happened when you got when you first got your first crowdfunding from Kickstarter? Did you you fired your clients and and went to work for two months? And then what'd you do? Yeah, I, I worked and spent most of the months just trying to solve the cross platform issue, which was the first thing because the JavaScript module ecosystem is terribly fragmented, and the goal of JS Git was to have this platform that runs anywhere. So I had to run on Chrome app platform, on the web platform, on the Firefox app platform, on the Windows app platform, on Cordova, on pretty much any JavaScript platform you can think of. And so I spent the first several months mostly figuring that out. I mean, I did some get specific code here and there, and a lot of it was finding out what existed and how I could use it. But I'm going to admit, a lot of that time was, was spent trying to find a flexible way to work with all these systems. What's the, I guess, what's the biggest hurdle between the two, between all of them? Just uh, the fact that they're just different, they make different choices or how they store data, how they deal with databases? I mean, that kind of stuff you can abstract away. The, the trick was, how was the best way to abstract that? How, what kind of dependency injection do I want to use? What kind of module system do I want to invent? Because I can't use anything existing. A lot of people told me to just use Browserify which I understand if you're on a desktop platform, that's a great choice. But I'm specifically targeting platforms that don't have a command line, that don't have Node. Right. And so I want to be able to develop on these machines, not just consume on these machines. That was the entire point. And so I can't depend on any tool chains that need a desktop machine. 
So basically, there was nothing existing I could use. Yeah, it's like uh, all these. You might be able to learn something from some of them, or at least see what their what their goods and bads are. I guess you know what their fails and successes were to maybe learn from that. But otherwise, you're kind of hanging out in uncharted territory, right? I mean, I, I use Browserify style transforms. I write all my code as CommonJS modules, and then they're compiled to whatever I need for the target. But all these transforms run in web workers, or if I'm a node, they run in something else. But they, but it's all implemented in the TEDIP platform. Let's pause the show for a minute and give a shout-out to our sponsor, Snap. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery service that goes far beyond letting you do continuous deployment. Don't waste your time setting up your own CI box under your desk. Use Snap. Snap has first-class support for deployment pipelines. With Snap, you can push any healthy build to multiple environments automatically or on demand. This means with Snap, you could do things like deploy to your staging environment today, verify it works, and later deploy the exact same build to production. Snap integrates deep with GitHub, has great support for lots of languages, databases, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like DigitalOcean, Heroku, OpenShift, AWS, and many more. You can also use Snap to push your RubyGem to RubyGems. And Snap is always free for open source projects. Try a Snap for free for 30 days today. Sign up at snapci.com slash the changelog. Well, since you teed up T-Edit, um, you, you know, you did JS Git. Um, I guess out of the box, I'm, you know, I want you to explain what it is for one and then I guess a follow-up question to that would be, why no crowdfunding for T-Edit, but there was crowdfunding for JSGit? Okay, so on the crowdfunding, it did not go so well the second time. The bounty source, I set a much higher goal, I set a much longer time frame, because I learned that the companies can't get from idea to approval within a couple weeks. They just don't work that fast. Like Brian LaRue and some other people at Adobe were trying to help me get Adobe funding. And they're like, look, if you give us a week of warning, we're going to have a really hard time getting you that money. So I set the goal longer. I set the money higher. And I traveled. I went to California. I talked to people at all the big companies. And I was getting nothing. I was several weeks in, and I think I just had a few thousand dollars. Mostly from individuals who funded me the first time around and just liked me so much they want to do it again. Yeah, that's not sustainable. At the the last second, Mozilla bailed me out and, and paid the bulk of it with a grant. Wow! But I I learned from that that I can't live long term on crowdfunding. It helps you get an idea off the ground. It helps you discover if people like it. But I don't believe it works long term. So what was the feedback from the individual companies on T-Edit? Did it just not align with their particular goals like JSGit did? Or did you have a hard time delivering the vision? What well, I, d- I didn't even try to fundraise T-Edit, so I don't know. Oh, okay. The bounty source was still JSGit. Gotcha. But the, the feedback I got from several of them, and one of them just, just bluntly told me, he's like, look, my generation of managers does not understand giving money to an open source project. If we give you money, we want a contract in place and we want exclusive ownership. Mm. And I was telling them, no, this code is open. This code this code is freely available to anyone. And they're like, so you want me to give you money so my competitors can benefit? I'm like, yes, because if you don't, it won't exist and it benefits you too. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah, like, I mean, nope. <laughs> you think there might just be a generational gap there or maybe it just uh, case by case? 
I think so. I mean, Mozilla obviously donated the most twice, but they're a nonprofit whose goal is the open web. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing something cool with JavaScript. Like, they don't actually need JSGit. They just thought it was cool that I'm doing something with JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I think Adobe was the only company who actually had a use for it that donated because they were thinking of using it in brackets and something with some other stuff. That's tough. To, I mean, you know, Jared, you asked, is it a generational gap or is it something else? I think... Yeah, if you don't have the right person who cares and really understands, and I think that's kind of what we try to do with this show is to 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 not just talk about the projects, but also the people behind them and the motivations and their aspirations. And like you had said before, the goal behind this project is pretty audacious and it's uncharted territories. And shining a light on that is important because there's a lot of benefit that can come down the way from all this learning that you're doing. And what it gives back, but you know, we have a passion for open source. We understand the community, and it's a lot harder to sell that to someone who just doesn't get it, just doesn't care. Maybe they, maybe they get it, they just don't care. And giving a lot of money to something and and not seeing, in quotes, the ROI is is really tough. We we face that battle here and there too ourselves. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, there there were companies which I'm I know benefit a lot from what I'm doing, and I couldn't get them to, to fund because that's just not their policy. That's not how they work. And so, so is T Edit totally nice and weekends, and you're just uh, full time somewhere? Or at the moment, now? yes. So around the, around New Year's, the JS get money almost dried up, and so I made one last sprint. I was going to try to make a product that used JS get, and I could sell that product. I was going for the business route. Maybe I, maybe I could fund it that way. And so if you look at my GitHub history, you'll see I worked insane overtime the first couple months of this year. And I was basically just building T-Edit from the ground up. And I tried a web version, I tried a portable version, and I, I got stressed and just focused on a Chrome app-only version. So I just threw away all the, all the cross-platform stuff. And I got pretty far in the Chrome app version until I, I finally was really out of money. And so right now, I'm just I'm doing consulting work and I work on T-Edit when I have time, but the progress is way slow because I had to stop. See, I was going to ask you about the, the Chrome app piece because you talk about you know open cross-platform and then I look at it, it's a Chrome app, and I thought, this doesn't seem to line up with its goals, but it seems like it's just a, just a time and, and money decision for now. Well, and the- there's many versions of it. This week, actually, I, I, made, I made a little time, and T-Edit now runs on Chrome and web. Nice. So if you go to tedit.creationx.com, that's the web version. And if you look in the source tree, it's the exact same code. There's just a few parts where it swaps in some platform primitives and turns off some features. So, for example, in the Chrome app, I can access the file system. So I can read and write files. I can. There's one feature where you can export your tedit build system final files, like the, the built files, to the file system. And so you can use a Chrome app to make Chrome apps. <laughs> or I've used it for node development before. I was going to say, before we dive deep, in, I know that uh, TED is probably a, a rough concept for most anyways. Maybe you could tee it off by, you know, you mentioned the goal of, you know, programming being accessible to everybody, but can you kind of give us what exactly is TED? It kind of give us the high-level overview. Let's, let's start diving into some of the details around what it does and how it works and where you see it going. Sure. So, yeah, JS gets just a library. It was just a means to an end. And then Tedit itself is the developer environment. And the goal there is, is I want to, I'm thinking of two, two main use cases. One is me. I like being on random machines like my Chromebook Pixel, for example, or who knows what else, maybe my Android tablet. And I want to be able to do work there. 
and then kids in my programming class or just anywhere who are learning. I want them to be able to use any machine they have. I chose Chromap for now because it's everywhere nearly. If the machine has Chrome, it can run Chrome apps. So that's all laptops, including Chromebooks and desktops. And there, there's a lot of Chromebooks in schools. I, I, I thought lots of kids had them. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. And then two, the platform is very powerful. It gives you primitives the web doesn't have. I can access the file system. I can make a web server. I can get around the cores restriction and talk cross-domain. You have all these extra primitives that the browser doesn't have. So the the Chrome app that's in the, 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 the store right now is basically an IDE that edits Git repositories directly. It does not edit files on disk. And this is a very important distinction between tedit and all the other editors in the world. In everything else, Git is a tool you use on the side that creates a working directory, and then your editor works with those files on the hard drive. And then when you go back to Git, you pull those files back into the Git database. Whereas in tedit, you never have a working directory, ever. You always work directly on the Git database. So it's a, it's a, it's a slightly different way of working. Hmm. Does that make for a, a better user experience or more approachable than, than the traditional way? I'm still exploring that. One of the things that I've found that I, like, I really like so far is I found a way to make submodules not suck. Really? Yeah, because the concept is not wrong. Just the UX in the real Git client is terrible. Mm. It, it is horribly terrible. And this is why people don't use submodules, because they'll bite you. Yeah, I mean, I've personally given up on them a, <laughs> but, while, a while ago, so I don't even know what the current state of submodules is, because I just nothing's completely changed. just flushed them from my brain. No, nothing's changed. It's the okay. same. No one, no one works on it, as far as I know. Okay. But, like, the, the main issues were, one, it doesn't record the branch you're working on. Like, the way it's actually implemented is very simple. In the tree blob, for that file listing, it's just type commit, and then the hash is the hash in the other repo. That's it. No other context. It just points to the hash in another repo. And then in the root of your project, there's a git modules file that maps that path to a remote URL, and that's it. So by default, in the normal client, if you change anything, you get thrown in a detached head state. And then if you move some stuff around in the parent repo, it'll revert your code without even warning you, and your changes are gone. And if, right. you f- if you forget to push the submodule and then push the main one, it'll point to a commit that doesn't exist on GitHub, and like it's a nightmare. So how do you fix it? So with tedit, everything is one big continuous virtual file system. And submodules are just mapped in like you do an NFS or Samba mount, and you can just browse them as if they were local files. And depending on which backend you're using, it works really well. I have a GitHub backend that actually mounts the repos using GitHub's REST API and uses GitHub as the data store instead of a local data store. Hmm. I, have a, I have a local cache to make it faster, but all the real actions happen directly on GitHub. And so suppose I edit a file in a submodule. I will then save that blob to GitHub, which gives me back a hash. And then I modify the parent tree to say, hey, it points to this new hash, and then I save that and gets a new hash for the parent tree, and I do this all the way up to the root tree. And then once the root tree has a new hash, I create a temporary commit pointing to that root tree. And then in the parent repository, I update the submodule entry to point to that new temporary commit, and then this propagates all the way up to the root. Hmm. So anytime you change anything in a tree, 
it's saved all the way up in all the parent repos. And so if you knew the the hash to the temporary commit, you could see all these temporary state of your files in GitHub. But that's all in the background. Like yeah, you don't that, actually see that temporary commit. Right. I, since I don't actually move the reference, I don't actually move head, mm-hmm. none, none of it's visible. And in fact, if you don't commit it within two weeks, it'll probably get garbage collected by GitHub's backend. Hmm. So you don't want to be in this state for a long time. Like I, I commit my code every day just because... I don't trust my local machine to not eat my code. Right. Is this but, is this keying off of the uh, just watching? We'll link out to this too. So if you're listening, we'll we'll have this YouTube video. We're going to mention. Uh, we mentioned earlier Tim's awesome demo of this, which it was very enlightening and mind blowing. But you said in the video, uh, it's always committing. Is that just? Um, is that kind of like committing to your local Git repository and then finally doing a final push whenever you want to do? a commit of that code and is that kind of like a rebase of that or, or whatever to kind of munge it into one commit? Is that what you're doing or is it something more unique than that? No, it's, um, so like, like I said, when I'm using the GitHub backend, your JS Git instance is a proxy to GitHub. There is no local database. There is no clone. There is no pool. There is no fetch. There is no push. You are literally modifying your data on GitHub directly. Like, if you open up the terminal, you can see REST calls just flying back and forth. But it actually performs pretty well. So how does that handle offline? Is it just queue them up and wait? It doesn't. Or it doesn't? <laughs> okay. I have a task for that. Okay. <laughs> because well, I want this offline. this is offline, though, right? I mean, you got a lot of this that's offline and secure. I heard that a couple of times in a video. Can you talk about that? Is that a good time to talk about that? or? Uh, sure. So the backends, there's lots of backends for JS Git. There is no one backend. The JS GitHub backend is the one that live mounts GitHub repos. Mm-hmm. It's the one I use the most because I don't have push and pull implemented. And so mm-hmm. I can't sync. And so I just use that one. But once I implement the network protocols, the other backends will work great. There's an IndexedDB backend. I was working on a WebSQL backend this morning. There's I had a local storage one, but I don't know if it's still maintained because... There were some issues there, mostly with just limited space. If you're a node, I have a backend that can that can read and write real Git repos off disk, so it, it implements that format, that .git folder. Uh, I have the same thing for Chrome apps because Chrome apps can access the native file system, so you can mount a native Git repository using a Chrome app, edit it and t-edit, and then push it from the command line if you have Node or if you have Git. Hmm. So there, there's lots of backends, and it's very flexible. There was, I had people talking to me, one company thought about using S3 as a backend. And all I really need is a key value store. That's the bulk of what Git needs for its storage. So it depends on what performance you want. You can use anything as the backend. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't implemented push and pull fully yet. I haven't implemented merge or diff. And those will be in the, on the JS Git side, right? Not on the Tieta side. Yeah, they're part of JS Git, but Tieta will use them. It'll, it'll right. expose interfaces for them. And yeah, that's that's where I was when I ran out of money. I was I was implementing that stuff, and then I couldn't get done. So you mentioned you you ran out of money. Where what is the state of this project right now? I guess from a obviously you're passionate about it, so that that kind of goes without saying. But you know, are you out of money? What's the next step to giving yourself the necessary time to keep building this and I guess what is your direction so I've got some consulting work till end of June and after that I'm going to take another run at it see how much I can get done and see if I can find more novel ways to fund it 
I don't know yet how I'm going to do that. I'm just trying to survive and get there. Some some ideas I had was T-Edit Consulting, where people would want to use JSGit or T-Edit in their product, and they could pay me to integrate it into their platform. And I found some interest there from a few companies. I could do... One, one thing I really want to do, back to my original goal, is I want to make games. I want to make simple games, make them open source, and then write docs about how to write games so these kids can get into programming. And I was thinking about maybe selling podcasts or tutorials because people seem to want to pay for that. What I don't want to do is I don't want to charge for the code because I'm essentially writing infrastructure and infrastructure should not be for pay. It should be freely available because it's just code. It doesn't, it's not like it costs me anything to copy it. Mm-hmm. So I want T-Edit and JSGit and all the code itself to stay open sourced MIT or Apache, something very, very liberal and find other ways. I've considered another fundraiser, but like I said before, I don't think that's sustainable. Yeah, it's well, especially if you've been through two, and the second one even had the help of Bounty Source, um, still had to be you know the final bit taken care of by Mozilla. And big shout out to Mozilla too. You know, I'll give them a thanks. I know you already have, but on the show, that's that's awesome to support Tim like that. So yeah, they're awesome. Tim, you mentioned um, in that in the video that we keep mentioning your demo, uh, a pro version. What is that on the horizon? That's is that something that you're thinking about? You just mentioned free code, you know, and no charge for infrastructure. So, does does a pro version fit into that? Um, I don't know. I've sort of scrapped that idea. I do still have a hosting platform I've been developing, and that's actually my only private repo on GitHub. And. We haven't talked about the T-Edit build system yet, but... Yes, that was pretty neat, too. (laughs) High level, it's a build system like Grunt or Gulp or whatever, but it works completely different, and you don't need a command line. But this this same build system I've implemented in a Node web service, where I can host your T-Edit-based web apps, and it's basically GitHub pages, but with a bunch of smarts baked in. Mm. So one idea is I could charge for that hosting. Because it's a service, I don't mind. I don't mind charging for services. I just don't want to charge for the infrastructure code. But hosting's a hard thing to make money from. The it's, the build system that you mentioned is that um, is that where you were piping into like AppCache and the other tools that are available to to build something because you use the you use T-Edit to rebuild another version of T-Edit. Right, right. So let me let me go into that. So. The original goal was I wanted a full development environment. So once I have Git done and I've implemented push and pull and merge and diff and all that fun stuff, I have version control, I have sharing, and I've done dependencies with the easy submodules. I can add a package manager on top of that that just eases setting up these submodules. But you still need a way to build files. In modern web development, maybe some people use CoffeeScript, maybe you like writing CommonJS, but you're running in a browser. You need you need build steps. And so the T-Edit build system is kind of unique. The way it works is you create these rule files. I think they were symlinks in the video. Yeah. But now they're rule files, dot rule. They're actually written in John, which is a subset of Jack. Like JSON is a subset of JavaScript. So they look like JSON. They're just a little more flexible. And you basically say, all right, this... W- so you take the file that you want to exist. I need an app cache manifest or manifest app cache. And then you add .rule to the file name. Mark it as executable, because you can do that cross-platform in Git, because I'm not using real files. 
And what the system will do is when it sees an executable .rule file, when it's serving over the web or exporting to disk or going through anything that needs the built version of the files, it will execute that rule. And the rule itself will be an arbitrary program the user writes. And I'm going to maintain a library of some useful things. And so these are the equivalent of your, your Gulp or Grunt plugins. And so I have one called AppCache. And you give it a listing of files. And what it will do is it will search the Git tree, the built version, find the e-tag of all those files, and append them as comments in the AppCache. And if you've worked with AppCache before, you know that the, the file needs to change every time any file it depends on changes. And so that way, you don't have to constantly go update some timestamp in your AppCache. So when you refresh in the browser, it automatically grabs the new app cache, and you always have the latest code. And there's nice. there's other compilers. There's the the one I just built for my cross-platform stuff. I called what did I call it? JS compiler, something really really plain. But what it does is it takes a, a tree of source code that's in common JS node style, and then builds it as a bunch of AMD modules. And then I have a really really minimal AMD loader that injects those as script tags in the web page and loads them on demand. And I'm going to add another version that builds a single concatenated file for websites that want to work offline. And so what you'll do is you'll have all your JavaScript into one big concatenated file, and then your app cache manifest will point to that file. And then anytime anything changes, the e-tag of the big file will change, which will then cause the app cache to change. And so you'll have automatic concatenation we can throw in minification you can have any other filters you want we could do coffee script i have a i've put facebook's regenerator in there because i really like using generators so now i can use generators in any web app or chrome app i want and all of this works without a command line without node without anything let's pause the show for just a minute and give a shout out to our sponsor TopTile. now we've been working with TopTile for about a year now almost a year now and we thought it would make sense to circle back and talk to some of our listeners who have applied to TopTal and have been accepted. Because only about 2 to 3% of the engineers who apply make it past their strict elite engineering process. And Daniel Lauzon, a longtime listener and fan of the changelog, um, is now living the dream. He's an elite engineer at TopTal. And I say living the dream because he's now able to have... control of the types of projects and technologies he's working on, as well as the rate he wants to charge. Daniel earns 100% of his income as a TopTal engineer, and he wanted me to pass on his seal of approval of the TopTal experience. For those of you out there who are freelancing or would like to test out freelancing, you've got to check out TopTal. If you think you have what it takes, head to toptal.com slash developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash developers to get started. Tell them the changelog sent you. You mentioned in the video too, since you're mentioning Node and NPM, I think you mentioned earlier, um, you know, on a Chromebook. So you're, this is just to kind of recap, this is pointed right now. It's a Chrome app. And I think it seems like if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it seems like it's a Chrome app now, not because you don't want to be cross platform, but because you have limited time and you need to make progress. Um, is that, is that accurate to say? Well, I need, I need the extra primitives. The web version has serious limitations, right? I can't get GitHub or Bitbucket to turn on cores. I have asked them multiple times, and I don't know if they have security security concerns or what, but a web page mm-hmm. cannot clone from GitHub because it's cross-domain. Yeah, right. 
Now there is their REST API, which I use extensively, but it's it's much slower and it's proprietary to them and it's not the same. So with the Chrome app, I have full access to everything. And also I can access the file system. I can create a local HTTP server. And so you can write a web app in the Chrome app, host it, start the web server in the Chrome app. And then another tab in your Chromebook, you can then run your web app. And all of the build files will be built by tedit in the Chrome app and everything works end to end. And then like you mentioned, you can also self-host the tedit itself. So I can build a Chrome app with a Chrome app. That's awesome. Let me just <laughs> stop you for a second and say, you're doing some really cool stuff. I, when I watched that Jared up my, I was like, I'm, I seriously almost fell over. I had to catch myself. <laughs> I feel like there's certain people out there that like, everybody should, they should just be given a bunch of money and be like, just go do your thing and we're all going to be better off. And I got a feeling you're one of those guys. Yeah. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at, uh, offline, I, mean, we'll, I, I, think, uh, I think what Jared's trying to say is, you have our full support. Whatever we can ever do to help you, we're, we're going to be there for you. And I'd like to talk to you more about some ways we can be a part of that and just help make your life a little easier uh, if we can. So you um, you touched on the web server part of it. Um, is there any more we can mention about that? I think it's just kind of unique that it's it's all-encompassing T-Edit. It's, it not only is it, it's a full-on IDE. It's, it's uh, headed straight from Git. I mean, this is pretty some pretty amazing stuff. Um, you know, you can run the app itself with it. Um, and I, I think one other quote you had said, you're not building an editor, you're building a workflow. And it right. seems like this is, you know, not only is it, it's, it's got all these complex backend pieces, but you're also able to serve up whatever you've built. And then the offline part that I think you touched on in the video that I'm not sure how accurate it is now because that was in February, but you were able to kill the current web server and still serve up the game from the app cache. Right. So app cache lets apps work offline. And when I get the web version of Tedit done, it's going to have its own app cache. So you can you can go on an Android tablet, go to tedit.creationx.com. It'll run today, but you have to be online. But once I get all of that done and I've implemented offline sync, then you'll be able to add this to home screen. It'll work offline just like any native app, which which I, I'm very excited about. Mm-hmm. How has uh, mounting a GitHub repo changed? It see, I couldn't tell from the video how it seemed like you had to like manually type in. You couldn't just like what maybe some users, at least I was thinking that you might just be able to choose um, you know, from the repo versus like hand typing in creation X slash T edit. I have an app, for example, to, to kind of, and then you also had to point back, I think a SHA one code. Can you talk about mounting a GitHub repo? Maybe how that's changed since February, if it's changed at all. So that, that UX hasn't changed much. The, what that is, is it's a GitHub token and I'm not sure you can GitHub OAuth from anything that doesn't have server assistance because the way they've set up their OAuth but you can go to GitHub and request an app token and then paste that token in. And you only have to do it once to set up your machine and it remembers it. Okay. Now, the other part, the, the paste in the URL is just me being lazy. There's no reason I couldn't have a smarter UI that using the REST API queries all of your Git repos and gives you a dropdown or some smart selector or whatever. That's a nice to have, not a need to have, right? Yeah, I'm focusing on the things that other people can't do or gotcha. other people think they can't do. There's nothing I'm doing other people can't do. And um, just to kind of key off one more thing, I, I'm not sure if we touched on it, I think slightly, but uh, it uses Ace Editor, and it kind of goes back to what I just said, which is what you said, actually. 
uh, which is I'm not building an editor, I'm building a workflow. So you didn't actually build the editor part of it. This is from an existing open source project that's out there. I think I was going to ask about your Cloud9 experience. I'm assuming you had some part in Ace Editor as well. I didn't actually work on Ace a lot while I was there. It was pretty much Fabian's work. I At Cloud9, I was doing a bunch of infrastructure backend stuff making the like the big thing I did there was I made the terminal run in the browser over a WebSocket with the lowest latency possible. Okay. But yeah, Ace is amazing. I've I used CodeMirror for a while and then I switched to Ace because I I prefer it personally. It's it's a lot more full featured out of the box, but it's also a lot bigger. So it's a trade-off. I liked your um your comments too about working late at night near children in low light levels and being able to easily swap out the various um, oh right the various yeah. syntax highlighting colors that was pretty neat too. So when you open up Tedit, you're going to see a, a nice window at a tree view. The tree view is all my code, and that's all custom code. That's the bulk of the code actually. Everything's inside that tree. And using TJ Holloway Chuck's CSS parser, I parse out the Ace theme when you change themes, and then apply the same colors to the tree. So your entire screen is the same color scheme. Because like you said, I, I am all often working in the dark in a bedroom next to children helping them sleep. And I hate having this bright white tree here next to this dark code here. And it's, yes. it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of, I, I like that too. I was just, I think those who primarily work maybe in, in Vim or something like that are used to it because it's all whatever they set for their theme in, you know, in their terminal but for those who maybe work in Sublime Text or other, I guess, IDEs, you generally have syntax highlighting and colors for your code, but then it doesn't really apply to your sidebar, your you know, your file system, like you just mentioned. So it's it was neat how those played a part too, and just even easy too how you can swap um, from one color to another. I think it makes it a little harder in other editors, and for some reason, uh, you just made it so easy. Right, like I said, my focus is accessibility. Yeah. And part of accessibility is uh, vision. So one of the first things I did for T-Edit was you can change the font size and the color scheme with keyboard shortcuts. There, You can change them very easily. So if I'm presented at a conference and I'm live demoing, I can change it to a, a white background if it's not a very good projector. I can bump up the font or shrink it down. I want all these things to be extremely easy because I don't want them to get in the way. So those were some of the first things I did. Well, we didn't talk at all about Chrome FS. Maybe you mentioned it, NodeFS. Um, I'm just looking at some of our notes we had for this call. It, what before we begin to close out the show? What other things can we mention that you know just you haven't done enough, Tim? So what else is there to mention that's um, really important to close off? I guess talking about T-Edit and, and I guess the direction you're taking with it. Right. We should probably talk about the current state of the project and what people can use now. Okay. Well, it's not done, and the biggest missing pieces are network and diff and merge. But what is done is a lot. The JS GitHub backend is quite mature. I, I use, you can use it in Node or Web App or Chrome. It works anywhere. The And that's the JS GitHub project. There's two new ones. There's Git ChromeFS and Git NodeFS. And what those do is those use the built-in mix-in in JS Git, the FSDB, and they let you mount real Git repos using JS Git, either from a Chrome app or through Node. And so the the hosting project I was talking about, what it does is that GitHub mounts the projects, but then it caches them locally using a real Git repo using the Git NodeFS. And when I'm doing my consulting work, 
what I'll do is using tedit, I will mount my local Git repo on my MacBook. And that way I can edit the Git tree in tedit. And I need the files back on the hard drive for Node. And so I live export the whole thing to the hard drive. And so anytime I change a file, it writes it out first to the Git repo and then to the working directory. So I can test my code. There, there's, a, there's a few weird things about it because I now have two copies of everything. But some nice reverts or Git resets fix that pretty quickly. So you can use JS Git today for a lot of things. You can... Since you can read and write existing Git repos, if you're on a server where you have real Git, then you can clone using normal Git. And then using JS Git, you can mount that repo and use this nice JavaScript API to walk the tree and walk the commits and do code analysis or custom builds or whatever you want. So this could be used for JavaScript package managers or build systems or continuous integration systems. I want to be able to eventually use it for mobile apps that want a syncable offline storage. And so I have two tasks there that I'm going to work on soon. One is I'm adding sync to the GitHub backend so it can actually work offline and then sync with GitHub using the REST API. Mm. And then another one is I'm going to implement the full pack protocol that everyone else uses, that real Git uses for the platforms that actually have that network primitive. Since you were talking about the, I guess, location of where things like mounting from GitHub, it seems like it's got some deep GitHub integrations. At one point during your demo, you talked about owning your own code and you feel very passionate about that. Is it, is it where you store your code or what did you mean by that? I couldn't quite understand what you were trying to, trying to emphasize with, owning your own code in the editor, is that is that keying off of where you mount your repos from? Like your own private repos or GitHub or Bitbucket? Is it is it that or is it uh, something else? So I, I worked with cloud IDs. I mean, I've worked at Cloud9 for a while. And the biggest issue I had with them is your entire workspace lives on some cloud server. Right. Which, I mean, first of all, that's a practicality issue. You have to be online. And that's that's a non-starter for me. I have flaky internet. I travel a lot. And then it's on their cloud server. They can read it. They can write it. They have full access to your code. They have your GitHub token. They can write to your GitHub. I don't think any of these companies are malicious, but just from a security standpoint, you don't want anybody with that much power. They could be corrupted. They could be hacked. They are now a hacking target. Whereas if everything lives locally in your device and you just push to GitHub or Bitbucket as a public mirror, then it's different. You, you are now in control of it and you control who has access. So, and also with JS Git, it's not hard at all to write your own, your own services and your own hosting. As soon as I get some of this network syncing stuff done, it'll be trivial for people to host their own Git repos and even mount them off their own servers. Yeah. Because the, li- the live mount is really convenient if you have large repos with lots of sub-dependencies. You don't have to do recursive clone. You just instantly mount and everything's available. I was going to say, it seems like I mean, for the most part, GitHub is very popular because of its collaboration around open source, not so much for being a Git hosting platform. That's how they started, but they popularized social coding, so to speak, and obviously are responsible for a lot of the big push and adoption for open source and maybe even some growth. Uh, Maybe somebody's going to punch me in the face for saying this, but like just growth in the developer ecosystem. You can't you can't uh, not recognize their power. And their, um, you know, their push for this. So I was just kind of wondering. It seems like 
because Tiet is so easy to use in this respect by mounting a repo, it doesn't really have to live on GitHub. It's just that's your means right now. Right. And like you can use the web version today, mount a GitHub repo and edit it. So if you just want a quick way to edit your Git repos, just go to tedit.creationx.com, paste in your token and edit anything at will. We got uh, several links that uh, this will be a link filled show notes episode. So if you're listening to this, uh, go back to the change log, find the episode. I think this is 124, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, and are also on five by five. The, the, the links will be there or even in your podcast catcher. So we'll, we'll share tons of links. So if you can't hear us or you weren't sure, uh, check the links. We'll, we'll have a bunch of show notes for this, but, uh, Jared, is there anything else you want to mention before we start uh, closing off the show? Well, I did want to ask about Jack, but I'm not sure if we uh, have time to even do that. We might that have to have him back point. just for a whole entire show. <laughs> maybe you can maybe do a quick overview and we'll have you back to talk about Jack. All right. Um, Jack is a fun project. My goal there is to make a language that's easy to learn yet powerful. It's basically a mix of JavaScript and Lua. And I'm really excited to actually use it someday. I haven't had time for it yet. <laughs> so is it backburnered because of T-Edit at this point? It's way backburnered. It's I've been working yeah. on it since before CoffeeScript. Wow. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you also mentioned John, which is, uh, I guess, a sub-brother? Sub-sister? It's a, so I guess sub-brother, subset. right? Subset. Subset, yeah. It's, uh, it's Jack object notation. Okay. So... John is to Jack as JSON is to JavaScript. Ah. So in tedit, all the config files and that one file that opens up with the instructions, those are all basically John format. So it's it's just a subset of Jack that's the data format. And it's a strict superset of JSON. So you could write JSON and there would work, but the quotes are optional, the commas at the end are optional. You can have comments in line. It's a, it's a little more flexible than JSON. You decided against Jill on that one, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't fit the acronym. Yeah. No. We can, yeah, that's that's neat though. So I, I guess, uh, yeah, for one, I mean, I just, uh, I, I'm not even kidding when I said I almost fell over with uh, watching your video. I was like, wow, this is insane what you're doing, and you're definitely leading the charge in that. That's that's for sure. So, um, I, I, one way we close the show off is we have a couple questions. I don't think we had these questions whenever you first came on the show back when you're talking about Lua. I think in the early 20s of the changelog. Um, but one, one question we ask, and you may have already asked or answered this during the call, but to be blatantly clear, what is a call to arms for your projects? You know, JS, Git, I think that's pretty much complete, but um, obviously you're probably still accepting code uh, to that. But how, how, can, how can the general public listening to this either step up and help you code-wise, issues-wise? How can the community step up and help you? So it's, it's to the point where other people can code without getting in the way. I have a lot of issues. What what I really need is, starting in July, if your company is interested in using this, you can hire me to integrate it. And I promise that almost every company with that involves data or dev tools can use this in some way. So if you can get your company to hire me to help integrate this, to add the features you want, I want it to kind of work like the CodeMirror or LuaJet projects, where they have corporate sponsors who add features, and then everyone can use the code. And, and the, what's yeah. the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, you got uh, creationx.com is your homepage. We'll have that in the show notes. Is that is there a contact button on there? Or how, what's the best way to reach out to you? I hope there's a contact button. I don't know. I mean, my <laughs> my email is probably the best. Okay. My email is public on my GitHub. It's tim at creationx.com. Gotcha. You, 
Yeah, that works. And uh, I guess the next question, which is is usually a fun question, so I mean, it doesn't have. I'm considering your background. I'm assuming you'll be talking about uh, programming to some degree. But what would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing? Mm. Good question. If I wasn't doing the JS Get T Edit stuff, yeah, this mission we're talking about on this show, like if you weren't trying to put all your passion and all of your effort and all of your time into that, either through your own free time or supported time, you know, if you weren't doing that, what would you be doing? I would probably be, oh, I don't know. If I wasn't programming, I'd be making things. That's for sure. I I make things with paper, with wood, with whatever. If it was computer related, I'd probably be writing libraries, template engines, compilers. That's, that's still pretty much related to this. I'd be making something for sure. I am always making things. I'm always creating. That's why my my handle, the creationix, is the word creation, and then ix from Linux from Unix. Mm. I create open things. That's what I do. I was thinking that uh, the x part kind of gave it away, but I was I wasn't sure for sure. Yep, I, I I create things and then I open them up. That's what I do. And I guess uh, our last question we ask is, uh, I don't know if you answered this your first time around, but uh, who's your programming hero? Like, who's inspired you? Who's helped lead you? Who's encouraged you? Anybody. It can be one person. could be a couple people. Uh, whomever. Oh, I got, I got lots of heroes. Um, Name them all. A couple, That's fine. All right. There's a couple language designers I like. I like Matt's from Ruby. He's a really cool guy. I've met him in person. I like Brendan Ike from JavaScript. They're, they're very different people, but I like them both. Um, I'm, I'm impressed with Mike Paul for the way he gets paid to work on Lewidget, even though I know very little about his actual person. He's quite cryptic. Oh, I'm going to butcher his name, but, um, the code mirror guy, is it Marine? How do you say his name? I don't know. We'll have to look it up. The, the author of code mirror and turn JS and the eloquent JavaScript book. He, he is amazing. I oh, yes. love what he's done. Let me look behind me. I have it on my shelf. Yeah, the big yellow book. That book is great. Let's see. I'll try and... He's good. He's, I've been meaning to reach out to him, too. I'm going to say Marijan Haverbeck. Haverbeck. Yeah, I'm sure Beak. I butchered the name. Yeah, I probably but did, too. Sorry think, about that. I think he's awesome. So, yeah. I I like those people. I think they're cool. Awesome. We'll do our best to, to do some digging, too, and make sure we get some links in the show notes. So, if you're... I know one reason I like asking that question on the show is just... It kind of gives some insight to who inspires you, and they're not always um, people that are very public. Like I mentioned, you don't know so much about um, one particular person uh, just because they're sort of just not very public about what they do. So, But uh, their work is, and that's what inspires you. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, this has been a fun show, man. I, I know that, uh, T-Edit, I, again, I'm glad you said T-Edit because I was going to call it T-Edit, um, just based on the 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 phonetic sounding of it i suppose i was going to sound it out versus thinking just t edit but uh tim thanks so much for joining us on today's show i know that um you know we'll definitely help out if we can we uh we'll do whatever we can to also in the future now or in the future just promote ways that, that the community can support you whether it's through funding or whatever so if ever you need a friend to to help you out we'll, we'll be there for you but um before we close the call, I want to give another shout out to our sponsors, DigitalOcean, TopTow, and SnapCI for supporting the show. Thank you so much for your support. And if you 
if you're a listener and you haven't yet done this, subscribe to the Changelog Weekly. It's been on a small hiatus, but there's no reason not to sign up because we are bringing it back. Uh, we get death threats and emails daily about where's this awesome email I've been getting and why did you stop doing it? So we can't stop shipping that. So the changelog.com slash weekly to sign up. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for joining me on the call today and Tim, you as well and the listeners for listening. So until the next time we speak, maybe about Jack, let's say goodbye. See ya. All right. See you guys later. Bye.